This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Alchemy If there's one thing that our research has taught us, it... That's a silly way to start. Despite the fact that we are very smart, there are lots of things our research has taught us. In fact, as a rule, we make sure to learn at least one new thing every episode, even if we're writing about a topic we know a lot about. So perhaps what we should say is this. Among the many things our research has taught us, one stands out as a good way to introduce this particular episode. A lot of what we call the fantasy genre has evolved pretty directly from Dungeons and Dragons. Now to be fair, Dungeons and Dragons was an amalgamation of lots of different things, from medieval history to the various science fictions and fantasies of Jack Vance, Robert E. Howard, Poole Anderson, and so on. From Greek mythology to Slavic folklore to classical Christian literature to Buddhism, Shinto, and Hinduism, it's all been laid over a firm foundation of J.R.R. Tolkien's particular take on European mythology. Basically, D&D melted a whole bunch of stuff together, and everything else that calls itself fantasy eventually traces back to someone somewhere playing Gygax's game in their basement. D&D is the common ancestor of pretty much all modern fantasy. And that means that usually, except for very deliberate departures, most things are pretty much the same from fantasy to fantasy to fantasy. And then there's alchemy. What a mess. No two alchemies seem to be alike. In Dungeons and Dragons, at least in the core, alchemy is a topic only lightly brushed up against. In 3rd edition, there was a crafting skill that let you make some peculiar little tools like flasks of explosive alchemist's fire, bags of ensnaring goo, and completely non-magical glow sticks that were just as bright as torches, but which didn't drop flaming oily cinders everywhere or fill the room with a thick choking smoke. And in 5th edition, there's a toolkit that lets you make alchemical things but it isn't particularly well-defined. And because D&D never really defined alchemy very well, no one else seems to know what to do with it. In 2010, Paizo's Advanced Player's Guide for Pathfinder introduced a non-magical alchemist class. Alchemists were basically mad scientist grenadiers, concocting everything from Jekyll and Hyde-style mutation juices to poison and an utterly ludicrous variety of incendiary, shrapnel, and gas bombs. In World of Warcraft, alchemists can pretty much only create potions, and they primarily use plants as ingredients. The Elder Scrolls series follows the same idea, forcing you to wander around the landscape collecting flowers, butterflies, and mushrooms to keep yourself stocked up with healing potions. And the Witcher series combines both the Pathfinder approach and the Warcraft approach. You can mix magical potions and mutagens and explosives. Why not? See, this is what happens when D&D doesn't have an answer. But honestly, it isn't too surprising that alchemy is a mess in the worlds of fantasy. It's kind of a complicated mess in the real world, too. Go on, try to define alchemy for yourself. 
You might go with the potion-making definition, right? Or the ancient chemistry definition. Or you might define it by one of its pursuits. Maybe the whole turning lead into gold thing. Or the search for the elixir of eternal life. Or, if you're an avid listener, you might go with the search for a universal solvent. But is there one nice, neat definition that encompasses all of that and really gets to the core of alchemy? If there is, not too many people know it. First, let's get this out of the way. Alchemy is what's called a proto-science. It technically isn't a science, but it did lay the foundation for a modern science, specifically chemistry. Now, if you're not aware, chemistry is the study of matter. And by matter, we mean stuff, physical stuff. Chemistry is the science of classifying matter, understanding its properties, relationships, and interactions. At its core is an understanding of the atomic structure of matter, the properties of specific elements, and how those elements interact and combine to form other substances. And, as a science, it has at its heart a rigorous approach called the scientific method. The scientific method is a specific way of advancing human knowledge, and it was codified by attorney and philosopher Francis Bacon in 1621 in his book Novum Organum Scientiarum, or The New Method of Science. Basically, the scientific method starts when someone notices something in the universe and wonders, what the heck is going on there? Through their observations, the person forms a hypothesis, a possible explanation for what the heck is going on there. After that, they devise a way of testing their idea about what is going on there. If their test, called an experiment, doesn't somehow prove them wrong about what is going on there, they formulate a story. And a theory is a formal explanation of what is going on there that also makes it possible to predict something else going on somewhere else. The theory is applied by others, its predictions checked and checked again, and the theory is revised as needed whenever its predictions are off and it's discarded if something ever happens to prove it wrong. A true science is about the pursuit of understanding, and a modern science requires a rigorous methodology like the scientific method. Alchemy had neither of these. It lacked rigor because it was practiced by whole bunches of people across different cultures for more than a thousand years, and because alchemy was focused on practical results. And so it ended up being a lot of trial and error. So what actually is alchemy? Alchemy is the pursuit, broadly speaking, of transmutation. It's the attempt to turn one kind of stuff into different kinds of stuff. And through trial and error, alchemy produced a lot of neat stuff. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the very beginning and see if we can start to understand the sprawling mess that is alchemy. The mess begins with the very word. Alchemy seems to have two different derivations, and both of them seem equally good. In fact, both of them were equally correct at different times in history. And it's just a coincidence that they sound the same. And the reason why one word can have two different but equally correct derivations has to do with the history of alchemy itself. See, the ancient Greeks had this word, chimatos, and that meant to pour out liquids. And eventually that word came to be associated with mixing medicine and then alchemy. Meanwhile, in Arabic, there was this word chemia. And that word means land of black soil, 
And that was the Arabic name for Egypt because of the dark, fertile soil on the banks of the Nile River. Al just means the. And to understand why alchemy might be named after Egypt, we have to start talking about the history of alchemy itself. Interestingly, that history starts neither in Greece or in Egypt. It starts in Mesopotamia. Now, we've talked about the land between the rivers before. That's what Mesopotamia means. And it refers to a chunk of fertile land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in what we now call Iraq. The Fertile Crescent, as it's also called, is thought to be the first place on earth where humans gave up on the hunting and gathering thing and started growing crops, domesticating animals, and building settlements. It is also the birthplace of the earliest beers to exist on earth. And then they developed writing, mastered pottery, and invented the wheel. And if you've ever played any of Sid Meier's civilization strategy games, you know that after you've gotten those three developments out of the way, it's time to move up the technology tree to metalworking. In the cities of Babel, Ur, and Kish, the Sumerians used the vast deposits of natural tar to fuel their smelters and refine the first metal ores. But they also started learning how to mix dyes and perfumes, how to tan leather, and how to make glass. And while you might not think of things like dyes, perfumes, and glass when you think of alchemy, that is where alchemy truly began. Eventually, these various arts found their way to Egypt. And what the Sumerians invented, the Egyptians refined and even perfected. But the Egyptians had some odd habits. See, they considered all of these things, the making of dyes, glass making, metallurgy, and so on. They didn't consider them human inventions. They considered them sacred arts. And thus, they were the purview of the Egyptian priests. And the Egyptian priests attributed pretty much everything to their gods. For example, writing was invented by the god Osiris. The Egyptians continued to experiment with these divine arts. They mastered metalwork and developed sophisticated techniques to extract metal from ores. They developed extremely high-quality bronze, and they became very skilled at working with gold. They discovered iron in meteors, and even developed crude steel as early as 2900 BCE, according to some archaeological evidence. In addition, they also mastered the creation of a type of glass called soda glass, and they may even have made leaded glass. And they could also make intricate shapes out of their colored glasses. And they were the first civilization to make artificial dyes, colors not found in nature. And all of these techniques required an understanding of some sophisticated chemical techniques. Now all of this is very practical. But when we think of alchemy, we think of magic, myth, philosophy, and spirituality. And for all of that, we have the ancient Greeks to thank. And while we're at it, we can also thank them for setting back the development of modern chemistry by hundreds of years. See, eventually, through trade, all of these various developments reached the lands of ancient Greece. But the Greeks were a little bit more high-minded about it all. The Greeks wanted to understand the universe. They wanted to understand how everything worked. And the philosophers of Greece were particularly concerned with questions of where everything came from and what was the nature of everything. And they had some peculiar views about the universe. Well, some of them did. But we'll get back to that in a moment. The point is that as the Greeks absorbed the Egyptian technologies, they steeped them in their own mysticism and philosophy. For example, take the elements. We're familiar with the hermetic elements of air, earth, water, and fire. And they are called hermetic 
because the god Hermes was associated with knowledge and magic. The Greeks believed that all earthly things were mixtures of these four elements. Now, we picture these elements as actual things, but the Greeks understood them a little differently. They aren't substances, but rather more like properties or qualities, and each was seen as a combination of either wetness or dryness, and of either coldness or hotness. Vary the proportions and you get everything. Well, almost everything. See, the Greeks also believed that everything originated from some sort of heavenly prima materia, a first substance, a quintessence, a pure substance. The Greeks figured that if you could understand how all of these elements related to each other and how to distill pure substances from impure substances, you could do amazing things, like cure any illness. And that's about where the Greek word for medicine got conflated with the art of alchemy. It is interesting to note, though, that some Greeks didn't buy the elemental view of the universe. See, there was this philosopher named Leucippus, and he thought that the idea of matter as made up of ephemeral elemental properties was silly. Instead, he proposed that matter was made up of tiny, indivisible units. His student, Democritus, expanded on the idea, basically saying that everything was made of tiny atoms of matter that could be combined in different ways. But two other thinkers, Aristotle and Plato, thought that idea was blasphemous. And they denounced the idea so thoroughly, and such was their popularity, that the idea of atoms was thoroughly quashed. The upshot of the elemental theory was that compounds themselves weren't permanent. Anything could be changed into anything else. And pure things could be distilled from base things. And when these philosophies were combined with the Egyptian technologies, the core idea of transmutation emerged. Through alchemy, you could change a base metal like lead into a pure metal like gold. Or you could distill a pure medicine that would cure any illness. Or invent a substance that could purify any other substance. And this merger can be symbolized in the figure of Hermes Trismegistus, who we've mentioned before. He's a merger of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Tote, who supposedly wrote down all of the secrets of ancient magic and alchemy that no one is sure really existed. Now, there are two interesting notes here. First of all, the Greeks did very little to advance the practical side of alchemy. As much as we think of alchemy as an ancient Greek invention, all they really did was lay their incorrect philosophy over the top of practical Egyptian techniques. Second of all, at this point, after the fall of the Greek Empire and the rise and fall of Rome, alchemy all but disappeared from Europe. See, while all of this was going on, in both India and China, scholars there were making the same discoveries that the Sumerians and Egyptians had. In India, these discoveries began with the production of medicines and in smelting and refining metals. The Indians developed their own steels, glasses, and dyes, as well as cement. And they also mastered advanced chemical processes. And much of their developments were steeped in their spiritual traditions, the Vedic traditions. In China, alchemy focused on medicine even more deeply, and combined with Taoist traditions, ultimately became focused on the purification of the body and spirit, and eventually on achieving immortality. In Europe, as the Romans came to power, interest in alchemy dwindled. The Romans were generally more practical and militaristic than the Greeks. 
While they retained many practical technologies such as metallurgy, they had little interest in the philosophical mumbo-jumbo that had come to surround Greek alchemy. And after the fall of Rome, as Europe entered the Dark Ages, the Greek alchemical traditions were forgotten. But between Greece and India and China, there lies a land that had contact with all three at various times. And that land was about to enter a golden age. In the 7th century CE, the lands that had been traditionally ruled by Persian dynasties, the Persian Empire, were undergoing a period of social unrest and economic weakness. On top of that, endless war with the Byzantine Empire had depleted their military. The current ruling dynasty, the Sasanian dynasty, could not maintain control. And meanwhile, in the Arabian city of Mecca, a man named Muhammad ibn Abdullah was born. At the age of 40, Muhammad reported having been visited by the angel Gabriel while on a spiritual retreat, and there he received his first divine revelation. Muhammad began preaching his revelations, which reaffirmed the monotheistic teachings of Judaism and Christianity. And thus the Islamic faith was born. Muhammad reported that he continued to receive revelations until his death, and those revelations formed the Quran, the holy scripture of the Islamic faith. Although he was initially a divisive figure, Muhammad was able to unite various Arabic tribes and to raise an army. His army gained control of Mecca, and his influence spread as the Sassanid Persian dynasty failed. After his passing, Abu Bakr became the first caliph. A caliph is a spiritual successor to the Prophet Muhammad as the leader of the Islamic community, though today different branches of Islam have very different views about the nature of a caliph and who can be recognized as such. In ancient Arabia, however, the important thing to note is this. After Muhammad's passing, the caliph Abu Bakr was forced to put down several rebel uprisings and his military actions touched off the conquest of the entirety of the Middle East by the Islamic Caliphate. By the 7th century, the Middle East, from modern-day Turkey all the way to India, was united under the Islamic Caliphate. And it entered a golden age. Under the Caliphate, science, technology, philosophy, medicine, education, and agriculture all advanced by leaps and bounds. And many scholarly works that would otherwise have been lost were translated into Arabic. Among the things preserved and studied, the various alchemical writings from ancient Greece. The Greek philosophical foundation for alchemy was combined with Indian metallurgy and Chinese and Indian medicine. And because the original writings of the Greeks had originated in Egypt, this discipline became known as alchemia, the teachings of the land of black soil. In essence, the Islamic golden age was a melting pot for alchemy. And then, with the Muslim conquest of Spain in the late 700s, alchemical texts had a way back into Europe. By the 12th century, Spain was divided between Muslim and Christian rulers. And so there arose many opportunities for the interchange of ideas between the two cultures. And in 1144, a language scholar from England named Robert of Chester was working in Spain and translated a book by the most renowned Islamic alchemist, Abu Musa Jabir ibn Hayyan. 
which basically spelled out all of the principles of Islamic alchemy. And thus alchemy was reintroduced to Europe. European scholars became hungry for more information and many more Arabic works were translated. And soon after, the practice of alchemy flourished in medieval Europe. Alchemists adopted the old Greek ideas, the ideas of transmutation and of four elements. And they adopted another old view, the macrocosm-microcosm view, which is often summarized by the phrase, as above, so below. The view was basically this. If you could learn how to do something on a small scale, you could apply the same process on any other scale. That led to the idea that if you could purify gold, you could also purify the human body. Moreover, that led to the idea that if you understood the relationships between, say, the movement of the planets, that would correspond to the interaction between elements. And as alchemy grew from a philosophical science to a complex set of mystical beliefs, the alchemists of the day began to jealously guard their work. They developed complex jargons, symbols, and codes, and they worked toward the most outlandish promises, those of multiplying metals, transmuting base metals into precious metals, cure-alls, and the elixir of eternal life. And this is pretty much where alchemy becomes what we picture today, a mystical pseudoscience practiced by secretive scholars who jealously guard their works as they pursue gold, glory, and everlasting life. But something else also happened during this period. The philosophical side of alchemy was being embraced by theologians of the Christian faith. Central to this was the idea of purifying the soul as a way of becoming closer to God, and the idea of seeking an understanding of the small-scale universe as a way to understand God's will. But many practitioners of alchemy in medieval Europe were more concerned with the practical side, with the creation of gold from base metals especially. Leaders and theologians were disheartened to see the philosophy of alchemy being subverted by basic greed, and some feared what would happen if someone did manage to create gold. King Henry IV of England was so afraid of alchemists making their own gold that he banned the practice of transmutation without a license. Pope John XXII denounced transmutation and said that anyone who claimed to be able to do it was a fraud. Dante Alighieri wrote a special place in hell for alchemists in his poem Inferno. They are deeper than murderers and tyrants, in fact. By the time of the Renaissance, the major Christian influences on alchemy fell away and a new focus began on practical alchemy. See, whatever else you might say about alchemists, whether you call them misguided altruists or greedy frauds, the one thing you can't call them is lazy. Alchemy was an art of trial and error, and through the years, alchemists continued to refine their processes and techniques. And as supernatural ideas fell away from alchemy, alchemists were sought after for their practical contributions to mining, metallurgy, medicine, and chemistry. And at this point in our story, we find ourselves back at the turning point we started with, where alchemy becomes chemistry and where science becomes science with a capital S. And also, now you can see why alchemy really never found a place in D&D. Because the philosophical mystic, hiding away in a secret lab, trying to find a pill to purify the human soul, is just not a great archetype for an adventurer. 
This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>